Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Proof uh, is a program of the University of Toronto which studies household food insecurity across Canada. And there'll be new statistics coming forward soon in a matter of weeks, I understand. But the statistics that are in place now are concerning, deeply concerning. And remember, think about this, what we'll be hearing in the next few weeks probably will inflate these numbers beyond what they are currently. We have a population of about 38 million people in this country. 5.8 million Canadians, 5.8 million, including 1.4 million children, were deemed food insecure, hungry, when the last set of stats was released. Professor Valerie Tarasek from the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto and lead investigator for proof is back on the program with us. Professor Tarasak, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. We last talked, I think, in October of last year. The number 5.8 million of Canadians being food insecure, 1.4 million children among them, was, was staggering at the time. Before we get into these numbers a little more and what they, sig- what they signify, the numbers that are coming out in a matter of weeks, do you expect them to be higher because of the inflation and the interest rates and what's been happening with food prices? I, I do. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm not sure how much change we'll see in the 5.8 million. But what I think will happen is we will see an increase in the number of people experiencing severe food insecurity. So, you know, of that 5.8 million, not everybody's experience is the same. Right. The thing that we're capturing in our measurement ranges from people worrying about running out of food through to compromises in quality, through to people really, you know, at times not eating because of a lack of money for food. I think it's that latter category where we're going to see um, increases for sure based on the rising prices that we've had. We're talking about 15, what, 15 to 18 percent of our national population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a massive number for a country that is really, if you consider what we, the size of our population and the agricultural potential of this country, we have everything it takes to at least feed our own population and, in fact, provide uh, significant support in feeding much of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are with, well, we might as well say 6 million people, 1.4 million of them children, being uh, food insecure. <sighs> Who is this impacting most? Well, it's impacting them. Um, most, I mean, you, you're flagging the number of children. Yeah. Most of the people in that that number are, you know, either under the age of 18 or they're working aged adults. And um, there is no question that um, their health and well being is compromised by the struggle to afford basic needs. And so, yeah, that's who I think it's affecting. The spin off of that, because there's such a strong intersection between household food insecurity and health. The other um, part of this then is its impact on our healthcare system, because yeah. people who are food insecure, adults who are food insecure, are way more likely 
to have been diagnosed with chronic diseases and to not be able to manage those conditions just because, I mean, they're struggling to make ends meet. They're, you know, they're not managing. Um, and so they're certainly not able to do the kinds of things that their doctors would be recommending to, you know, manage their diabetes or their um, depression or what have you. So they're more likely to turn up in the healthcare system, which means that Another implication, I mean, for sure, the worst implication is the lived experience of those people. But the other implication is that it, it is a, you know, an, a preventable drain on our health care budgets. You said the last time we spoke that income has a greater impact on food insecurity than food prices. I found that very interesting. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you yes. remind us what the, what the dynamic be behind that statement is? Well, at the end of the day, your ability to afford the food you need for yourself and your family is about how much money you've got in your wallet or your purse, right? And so, and food is just part of a total household's expenditure. The biggest part would be taken up with um, expenses for shelter, right? Either rent or mortgage or perhaps um, also utility costs, uh, those kinds of things. So when somebody is food insecure, it's because there's an imbalance between their income and their, their cost of living writ large. It's not simply an imbalance in that small portion of the budget that goes to food. It's a bigger imbalance. So somebody who's, who's unable to afford the food they need is also very likely to be struggling to pay their bills, pay their utility bills, telecommunications, uh, transportation, whatever other costs they have, prescription medications. So if we see a, an increase in food prices, like let's say, you know, I don't know, the price of a head of lettuce goes up as it has. Um, and so what's that going to do? Well, for somebody who's food insecure, you know, they're not going to buy lettuce. They, they probably were buying lettuce before anyway. But, you know, small perturbations in the cost of food aren't enough to tip the balance. The bigger things that tip it are, you know, a job loss. Um, and uh, an increase in um, the child benefit or income assistance programs, things like that. The big, you know, the big drivers are things that um, create either income shocks or the additions of incomes of like we're talking thousands of dollars, whereas typically the um, issues related to food price, they would be, you know, cents or maybe a couple of loonies or something. So the we, we identify people as food insecure through the lens of food because asking somebody if they can afford the food they need is a very good way to identify people that are struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. But they really are struggling to make ends meet across the spectrum. And that's where food prices are just one bit in this bigger bigger picture. When we're talking 6 million people, essentially, that's more than the population of a number of provinces in this country. The yeah. entire yeah, population yeah. of the... Of these provinces is, is less than 6 million people. And and I should flag for you, that has to be an underestimate because that almost 6 million doesn't include people living in the territories and it doesn't include people living on First Nations reserves or First Nations communities. So those are small populations, but they're very, very likely to be food insecure. The risk of food insecurity is typically, especially like in Nunavut, it's much higher than it is in, you know, in, in the 10 provinces. So... Even and oh, okay. The other group that's being left out of these headcounts right now are people who are without an, a fixed address. 
So people, you know, people on the street, people who are homeless, again, a group that would be probably universally food insecure. So it was six million, you say it like it's a, it's a huge number and it's the size of, you know, some provinces are larger, but it's also probably a conservative estimate of the true extent of the problem. Where do food banks fit into the equation? Well, they are the public face of the problem. There's no question, right? The, um, We've had food banks since uh, I think the first one appeared in Edmonton in 1981. So, you know, and they're very public. They, they're they um, issuing reports often, especially in large centers like Toronto. We're getting, you know, periodic reports from Daily Bread Food Bank telling us their numbers of people seeking assistance are rising dramatically. Um, we also are constantly seeing appeals for donations. So... In that sense, food banks, both in Toronto area, but across the, the country, they keep the problem alive and, you know, kind of we can see it. But in terms of the response, it's a bit complicated because when we look at the number of people using food banks, it is generally a very small fraction of the number of people who are food insecure in the community. When we take for example, that six million statistic, if we contrast that to the number of people who were reported to be, um, or the number of visits to food banks in that same year, it might be four or five times higher. So for every visit to a food bank, there'd be four or five other people in the community that didn't visit, but were also food insecure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, 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 it food, food banks are a very powerful public face of the problem, but they are really a very small part of the of the response because they see only a small fraction of the people that are struggling. And there is no indication that simply by giving people, um, you know, occasional bits of food charity, that you change the underlying drivers of their food insecurity. So, you know, people come back the next week or the next month and, you know, they're still struggling because, you know, their job doesn't pay them enough. They haven't been able to get enough hours. They're on a welfare program that by design isn't enough to cover basic costs. You know, like, those things haven't been altered by the act of somebody receiving charitable food assistance. It's shameful, really, that so many people in this country, and I understand the term food insecurity, I get it, but I would change that to hungry and, and going without food. And you, you, you talked at the beginning of our conversation, Professor, about people just not eating because they can't afford it. Or maybe they're spending... Uh, their money, their their disposable food budget on on their kids or uh, on their parents, the, the money just isn't there. There are things that we should be able to do and we should be doing in order to yeah. lower this number, to decrease the the number. Yeah. So this is absolutely shocking. I'm sure that there are people in listening to this program right now who find themselves being talked about. We're talking about the people. The people who are listening to us right now are experiencing exactly what we're talking about. Not everybody. But probably significant numbers of people have gone hungry in, uh, in recent days, weeks, months, and are yeah. concerned and maybe very much afraid of what's just down the road. Professor Tarasuk, let's come back to the 6 million number, 1.4 million Canadians, kids, out of that 6 million. And you're expecting those numbers to climb in the, in the weeks to come. What can we do? What should we be doing? What must we do to mitigate against this situation? Because it's, it has to be alarming. I know, look, I, I've shared with you and I've shared with our, with our listeners in the past that I lived homeless at 14 years of age. There were times we opened the fridge and there was nothing in it. Quite often, there was nothing in it. I would go to restaurants and ask them if there was any food left at the end of the day. 
could I come back and would they package it for me so my mother and I would have something to eat? That was my reality. So I know what it's like to not be able to put any food on your plate because there's just none available. What can we do to mitigate against these circumstances that exist in 2023? Well, I think we have to prevent people from getting in the situation of you and your mother. And so that's about saying, okay, where was the income coming from at that time? And how come it was so woefully inadequate? Um, when we look at who it is that's food insecure in Canada, like, you know, this problem has been measured and monitored by Statistics Canada for several years now. And we know a lot about who's in that 5.8 million. Um, it is primarily people in two categories, people um, who are in the workforce, so families reliant on employment incomes that are insufficient to, you know, are unstable and insufficient to meet their needs over the long haul. Or it's people relying on publicly funded income support programs like welfare or the Ontario Disability Support Program or um, something like EI, employment insurance, if someone is involuntarily unemployed. Um, through the um, earlier part of the pandemic, we had uh, CERB and CRB, the federal COVID benefits. Um, so we've got two groups. We've got people in the workforce but still struggling to manage. And then we've got another group of people who are for whatever reason not in the workforce and receiving some kind of benefit, but that benefit not being enough. So what do we need to do to fix this problem? Well, we need to take a long, hard look at the component parts of those households' incomes and say what, what can be fixed. Let's start with the what I think is the lowest hanging fruit in this picture, which is social assistance. A provincially administered program, so administered by the provinces and territories, it has been around in Canada for decades. It is known as the income support program of last resort. So where you turn to when all else fails, you have nothing else. If you are, you know, and then you apply and it's not a simple um, process to apply. There's a lot of scrutiny of you and your assets and your circumstances to be sure that you truly have no other source of income. And then you qualify in Ontario for what's called Ontario Works or if you are considered unable to work, then you could qualify for the Ontario Disability Support Program. But Roy, what might surprise you is that for years, people have been looking at those incomes and comparing them to basic costs of living. So looking at the cost of a nutritious food basket, the average cost of rent for a, an apartment of you know, appropriate size for the family that they're looking at, the money isn't enough. Um, so, you know, it, it, we've got... Um, people receiving those benefits, but over two thirds of them in Ontario are food insecure. Yeah, well, I, I have I have less than a minute. I can I can tell you this: my situation when I was fourteen was family related. Um, my father had died. Um, my mother and I were new to Canada, and uh, she couldn't work. And there was just so many factors against us. We were living homeless. We received what was then called. I'm not. A, I'm not ashamed to share this information with anybody. Uh, we received a what was called a welfare check in those days. Yes. There was seventy five dollars a month, and the rent was seventy three. You can't live on yeah. two dollars yeah. a month. Yeah. It's yeah. impossible. So this so, is why I did what I had to do, Professor Tarasak. We literally are out of time. I've got ten seconds. Please go ahead. Just going to say, you've said it all, Roy. What we need to do is fix that problem, right? You know. Yes. Make those make those benefits enough 
that families are able to cover those very Take basic care of We're not talking luxury, right? No, we're, we're not. We're, we're, we're talking about keeping people fed. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.